Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The very first African-American spiritual that was ever published in a prominent, if you will, American hymnal was a song you probably know, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, how it makes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The answer to that question in a very strictly literal sense is no. You weren't there at the crucifixion. Simply a fact. When Jesus was crucified, when he rose again, that happened 2,000 years ago, and not one of us here, of course, were there. What's amazing is that that event that did not happen during the span of any of our lifetimes, not even close, is a more important event than almost any of the things, really any of the things that we've actually experienced during our lifetimes. It, to us, feels almost like it happened yesterday. There's such a reality to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's so important to us. And yet there's a gulf of 2,000 years that separates us from that period of time. If you try to think about any other event that took place 2,000 years ago, those are not so vivid. You know, unless you're Mike, wherever he's at, teaching history or in his class, those are not as vivid. When was the last time you thought about the very strong impact that the Roman Emperor Caligula has had on your life? <laughs> when was the last time you thought about how the existence of the Zin dynasty has shaped the way you think and live? Those were things that happened 2,000 years ago, but there's only one event from that period of time that's more real and alive and powerful, impactful, vivid, shaping to us than even the events in our lifetime, and that, of course, is the death and the resurrection of Jesus which is a very surprising thing because of how long ago all these things took place. How is it that this one historical event is so vivid and real to us? You won't be surprised by the answer. <laughs> the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as it were, takes something that happened long before you were even a thought in any human's mind, takes the death and resurrection of Jesus, and as it were, carries it over 2,000 years to your life right now and sets it in your hand so that it is a reality to you now. Nothing else is like that, only this, and it is only by the work of the Holy Spirit. We saw last week that the Holy Spirit in creation, the external physical creation, uniquely vivifies, which means gives life. But the work of the Holy Spirit that's even more clear in the Scriptures is when you take that over to the spiritual realm. The Holy Spirit uniquely is the one who vivifies or makes us alive spiritually. And the way he does that is by taking things that happened 2,000 years ago, of which you were not a part at all, and applying them to you now. What we're talking about today is a subject that's often called the application of salvation. What the Father predestined, pre-planned in eternity past, and the Son performed literally in history 2,000 years ago, now that salvation, that is applied right now 
in real time by the Holy Spirit to individuals just like you and like me. Like I said, if we had just a few verses to work with last week in talking about the spiritual and creation, we have just the opposite problem today. We have a lot of passages that we could be talking about today, and so many topics we could talk about with the application of salvation. In fact, if you've ever read a Systematic Theology, which if you haven't, I'd encourage you, maybe pick up Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It just takes different topics from the Bible and presents them in a nice orderly way. But if you've ever read one of those, there's usually a very large section called the application of salvation, a large section. We're going to try to fit that large section into our discussion today. One of the first and most famous of them, if you know John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, that it comes to us in four fairly large books. The third book is dedicated entirely to what we're talking about today, the application of salvation. Or if you took... If you know of John Murray's famous work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, the last half of the book is Redemption Applied. Jesus accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. So the application of salvation, taking what happened long ago and applying it to us today. That's what we're talking about. We have to be so selective. Uh, And if you've ever studied the subject, you know just how selective we're being today, because we're doing it in just one class. But that's what we're going to talk about today. We want to first consider how the Holy Spirit takes something that happened so long ago and so far away and applies it to you. How does that happen? And then after we've considered His application of salvation to us, if I can play on the word, we're going to make application of that ourselves and say, why does it matter that we know that? How should that change the way we think and live? So let's begin with... The application of salvation. If you want to know where this falls in the larger scheme of our class because you like the structure, remember that I've said there are six main roles or works that the Holy Spirit does. The first one is to convey God's presence, and we've talked about that. Out of that first one flow five more. We talked last week about the first of those, life. He gives life. And last week we focused how he gave life in the physical realm. Today we're still talking about his giving of life, but in the spiritual realm. Then we'll see his relation to truth, holiness, power, and unity. So that's the scheme of the class. So let's see how he gives life spiritually or how he applies salvation in real time to us. To do this, we're going to be considering what's called the order of salvation, or if there are any Latin nerds out here, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And it's really important that you know up front We're going to be talking about, if you will, steps that take place when a person comes to Christ. That's what we're going to talk about. But I want you to know that these steps are not in order of time necessarily. So we're not saying one happened, and then after that another happened, and then another happened. Some of them are, but most of them it's a logical order. We're not going to get into that, but I just want to make that really clear up front, okay? We're going to look at these steps in the order of salvation and see how the Holy Spirit uniquely works in each of these. In conviction of sin, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, and sealing. Not sealing, but S-E-A-L-I-N-G, sealing. So we're looking at those steps in the order of salvation 
Those are things that the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, even if you say, I don't understand all those terms, the Holy Spirit's already done those in your life. So let's see how that happens. Let's begin with what you might be most familiar with when it comes to how the Holy Spirit's involved in our salvation, and that is conviction of sin. The fact is, if you were never convicted of sin, you cannot come to Christ for the simple reason that being convicted of sin is what shows you that you ought to come to Christ. There's no reason for you to come to Jesus if you don't have the problem of sin and you're not aware of that. Jesus is the solution to that. What happened 2,000 years ago is the solution to your guilt. But if you don't have a real vivid sense of your guilt, to some degree, then you don't come to Christ. And Scripture tells us that that conviction, and this is one, by the way, that in time does come earlier than the others, okay? The others aren't like that, but this one is. Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit's uniquely involved in helping us be convicted of sin. Here's the famous passage in John 16. This is verses 8 through 11. And when he, this is Jesus talking about the helper or the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The core meaning of the word convict is simply convince. That's really just what it means, convince. For you to be convicted of your sin just means you're convinced that you've sinned and that it comes with, that in coming with it, there is a guilt in the sight of God. You have to be convinced of that. So in this passage, if we just took that first line, we won't get all into it, but you just take that first line and Jesus says, the helper when he comes will convince the world, which includes all of us from the time we're born, those outside of Christ. He will convince us concerning sin. Why? Because we don't believe in Jesus. So when we're unbelievers, before there's faith and we are rejecting God's solution to our guilt problem, the Holy Spirit is the one who convinces us that that's what we're doing. Otherwise, we rationalize it away. You may be someone who's just skeptical about Christianity or you've seen hypocritical Christians. You use that as an excuse. Whatever it may be, we are resistant to the gospel until the Holy Spirit comes to convince us you are the man or the woman. You are the sinner. And that is uniquely a work of the Holy Spirit. So you could just, to make this more vivid, think about your own conversion. Your stories are all different. But I can think about mine. Growing up in a Christian family, and thinking I was totally fine with God because I grew up in a Christian family. So I was in by birth, and I was pretty moral, it seemed to me, until I get to high school, and all of the sudden, I start experiencing an immense weight of guilt, and I can't do anything about it. And I tried many ways to get rid of the guilt. Be a better person didn't work. I tried praying. I tried just about everything to get rid of the immense sense of guilt, and it stayed with me. Where is that coming from? That was coming from the Holy Spirit doing a work of conviction, even before I knew him, to convince me of my own sin. It's same for you. I don't know what your past looks like, but you just think before you know Christ and before conviction starts happening, you have many things to preoccupy your attention, your grades, 
boyfriend, girlfriend, car, career, house, future. You have many things you're thinking about. They're pressing in on your life and you're thinking about them. But you're not thinking about your sin so much. It's not a major thing. Maybe every once in a while you feel bad. And then all of a sudden, you're thinking about it. All of a sudden, it's massive. It's the most massive thing in your life. How? How did that happen? It wasn't some clever preacher or some gospel presentation that was done perfectly. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to convince you that you're a sinner. So that's how, in some sense, in time, the Holy Spirit is preparing to take what happened way back then and apply it. That's how he tills the soil. He does the work of conviction. Once he's done that work, and it can be long or short, everyone's different, but once he's done that work, now we move into how he really applies salvation to you. And the first thing, logically speaking, because again, all these next things can happen basically, as far as we can tell, at the same time. But logically speaking, the first thing that happens is what we call regeneration. Now that is a large word, but don't worry. There's a short word that means the same thing, short phrase, born again. That's all regeneration means. Re is again, generation is to be born. So regeneration is to be born again. In John chapter 3, Jesus shocked poor Nicodemus, that teacher of Israel, by telling him, unless one is born again, regenerated, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Some of you maybe might be old enough to remember a time in our country where the phrase born again was not known by everybody, even though it was there in John 3. R.C. Sproul, when he shares his testimony, when he first came to Christ, maybe this was in the 70s, 60s, 70s. Okay, there you go. But I remember R.C. Sproul talking about when he first came to Christ way back when he started telling people he was born again. And they say, you're what? <laughs> he said, this is before the term had gained momentum in the culture. If you say born again today, even to unbelievers, most people have a sense of what you're talking about. But even though culturally people have a sense of what the term means, it doesn't mean it's really understood. Born again is not just a religious experience that enlightens you. It's not just going forward at an altar call. The way Jesus describes born again or regeneration, it is a radical transformation of you at the core of your being. It is the realest, deepest kind of change anyone can experience. When you trust in Christ, or I should say even before, logically you trust in Christ, there is a regeneration that the Holy Spirit does. You say, how do you know that's the work of the Holy Spirit? John chapter 3, Jesus also said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Changing you at your core, the fundamental principle or principles upon which you live your whole life and conduct yourself, you think Changing you that deeply cannot be accomplished by any political movement. It can't be accomplished by a church, by rich friendships, by a spouse. It can't be accomplished by anything or anyone short of the Holy Spirit himself. But that is precisely what he does for everyone who is a believer. That's how he takes what happened back then and applies it. 
if conviction is the work of the Spirit where he's tilling the soil to prepare you to receive what happened way back then. Regeneration is in some ways also preparatory because we are dead in our sins. We cannot embrace the things of God because we're dead to them. We have to be made alive. That's what regeneration does. It takes us from a dead sort of a person, spiritually, changes us at our core of our being so that we are living, takes out a heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. That is all the work of the Holy Spirit. That's being born again of the Spirit or by the Holy Spirit, making us into spiritual people in that sense. So that is the work of the Holy Spirit, conviction, regeneration. Also, immediately at that same time, when you came to Christ, you were not only regenerated, you experienced what we call conversion. And conversion is just a neat way to summarize the two acts that you yourself did. It was because you were regenerated, so all credit goes to God, but these are things now that you did. You trusted or had faith in Christ, looking back 2,000 years, faith in Christ, and you repented, which means you turned from a life of, and a commitment to sin. Trusted, faith, repentance, that's conversion, together with a confessing that Jesus is Lord, a confession of him as Lord. That's conversion. Interestingly, the way the Holy Spirit relates to that is given us in 1 Corinthians 12. And this is a passage where Paul is probably talking about prophetic utterances, but it applies also to just when we come to Christ. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, anyone can say those words. Anyone can say those words. So something more than just the utterance of those words is meant here. And it is this confession that we make from the heart when we're converted. And it can't be done except by the Holy Spirit. So, at that point, you are a Christian. You weren't a Christian, and you were a Christian, amazingly. At the same time, something else happened within you. The glorious truth of justification. Justification is God reckoning you to be 100% clean, innocent, righteous, clear of guilt, and positively having always fulfilled his will completely and perfectly without any failure ever. That's you, right? <laughs> you say, it can't be me. It can be you because it is God looking at what happened 2,000 years ago. That was Jesus. That was his record. Justification is when God takes that record, which happened long before you were born, and by the Holy Spirit, in time, chooses to reckon you as having that record. So, well, what is he going to do with all my guilt? Can't just sweep it under a rug. Takes your guilt, puts it upon Jesus, and it's paid in full. That's justification. All of you sitting here, you might feel so guilty. Maybe you yelled at your spouse this morning, or you just feel like it was a failure of a week for you. If you're in Christ, all we see right here are just completely righteous people. And you can't get more righteous than you are in the way God reckons you. That is justification. It happens not because you're living such a good life, because we struggle. 
You are a sinner, but at the same time, you are reckoned as being righteous. Now, we usually think about the Father and the Son involved in our being justified, and that's right. But there's one passage that says the Holy Spirit's also involved. This is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. How? How did this happen? Well, it was in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of what he did. But look, also it was by the Spirit of our God. How can God perform this legal transaction when we're separated by 2,000 years from the death of Jesus now? You ever feel that tension when you're talking about my sins are on him, but he was back then, his run, but I'm here. Somehow it is by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who bridges the gap between what happened so long ago and what's happening in our lives today. It is by the Spirit of our God. It's as if the Spirit took the blood of Jesus from way back then and comes to your soul and applies it to the doorframe so that the angel of death passes you over. As we continue, at the same time that you were justified, you were also given this application. You were adopted into the family of God. It's not that God cleared your guilt by the death of Jesus, reckoned you as righteous, and said, now get out of my sight, you failure of a Christian. <laughs> the reason God justified you, why would he do that? The reason was to adopt you into his family. It was for the sake of this close, intimate relationship with God. Now, not all of you have had a good, healthy relationship with your earthly father, I understand. But we're talking about father in an idealized sense the best possible father. That's the sort of relationship you immediately begin with God when you're regenerated, converted, justified. When the Spirit applies salvation, you become a child of a perfect father. And a perfect father protects his children. A perfect father is intimately involved in the affairs of his children. He's not letting them run off and do nothing. A perfect father's thinking about their children's future. A perfect father is someone a child can come to with concerns and worries. And that father won't be cruel, but will be gracious and hear. A perfect father is correcting his or her, his child, helping that child along. That's the relationship you have with God. Now, how does the Holy Spirit relate to this adoption? Actually, there are two passages in the New Testament that directly link our experience of God as adopted children with the work of the Holy Spirit. The first is in Galatians 4, we'll see in the sermon series. It says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is not a reference to some old rock band. Abba was an Aramaic term that meant something equivalent to dad or daddy, if you will. It was how an Aramaic child, a child living in Palestine at the time of Jesus, would have cried out to a father. So I've got a little two-year-old daughter. She will say, Daddy. That's the idea of Abba. And it puts in father next to it just to translate it for us so you know what he's talking about. Abba, Father. That is stated again almost exactly the same way in Romans 8. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
you would not be able to enjoy your adoption as a child of God. It's hard enough with Satan accusing you and making you feel like you are the black sheep of the family of God. It's hard enough, but you would never be able to enjoy your status as a child of God if it were not for the fact that this is what the Holy Spirit does in your life every day. He's in there to assure you of your adoption, even now. He's a spirit of adoption, and then he assures you of it even now. He's closely involved in that. Let me give you one last, and by the way, there are other steps in the order of salvation that we're skipping over, some that relate more to the Father than to the Spirit, and some we just don't have time for. But let me give you one more, and it is this. When you came to Christ, you were immediately sealed with the Holy Spirit. Maybe this is the least familiar to you, but let me give it to you in Ephesians 1. In Christ, you also, you in Christ? Okay, this is you. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, here comes the Holy Spirit applying the gospel to you. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You didn't feel the sealing happen. That's why sometimes you may wrestle with doubts of your salvation. You can't see the sealing of the Holy Spirit. But this is a real thing that actually happened when you believed. It is a picture that's drawn from the ancient world when you would send a letter. You'd roll it up, presumably, into a scroll-like thing. And then, if you were royalty or well-to-do, you would have a ring that would have an imprint. And you would take some hot wax... I don't know if there's any reenactors here of ancient times. Maybe you've done this. Take some hot wax and you'd stick your imprint in the hot wax. You'd stick it right on where the paper ends on that scroll. Stick it right there. Why? The meaning is no one can open that scroll without breaking the seal. So if you receive the letter and the seal is still complete and whole, it means no one else read that letter. It guarantees that the letter We'll receive the, we'll get to the intended recipient, or at least they'll know if it didn't. That's the point of a seal. I don't know, I probably should have thought of what's some, something today that relates to that. You can kind of do that with letters today. You know if it's been torn open, but it was very vivid back then. That is what you've experienced as a Christian. It's not something for you to seek after. It's something that's already happened to you, and it was specifically done by the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, He's working in you. He's doing his work. But his presence in your life is also the guarantee that you're sealed. It is the seal. And you are on your way as a letter to the heavenly courts. Jesus said he went to prepare a place for you. And when he works hard to prepare a place, he never leaves it uninhabited. So there's a guarantee that you are going to be there. You know, come talk to me in a hundred years. <laughs> we'll celebrate the fact you're going to be where Jesus has prepared. But how do you know when Satan comes with his accusations and causes doubts and you see your own failures and weaknesses? How do you know it is this seal that's upon you? You're not going to be opened until you get where you're supposed to be, which is in paradise with God forever. And that is specifically a work of the Holy Spirit within us. So there are more things we could talk about but I hope you can see the Spirit as the giver of life. He's the one who takes what happened so long ago and so far away, 
And in real time, if you've trusted in Christ, all of these things happened, not automatically. It's not a machine. It was specifically, consciously the work of the Holy Spirit doing each and every one of these and more in your life in that moment. So that is the application of salvation, the Spirit giving us spiritual life. Now, what I want to do with the time we have remaining is think, what's our application? These are wonderful theological truths. I hope you're encouraged by them. What do you do with them on Wednesday, you know? So let me just talk briefly a few among what could be many other applications. These are not points, by the way, that are just meant for some theological elite up in an ivory tower some way, where sometimes Christians get the feeling if we start using words of so many syllables like regeneration, it's too many. I'm out. I'm done. Please don't be that way. These terms, I don't care if you know the terms, but what they represent is from Scripture. And it's written in Scripture for you to know for specific reasons. And here's two of the reasons I think we are told that the Holy Spirit applies salvation to us. Here's the first. Gratitude. Just immense gratitude. You ever been in a workplace break room? Somehow, in those break rooms, according to everyone, the weather is terrible 365 days of the year. I don't know how that's possible. On the sunniest of days, oh, but just you wait. It's about to turn. It's Evansville. You know, it's bipolar. It's going to go crazy. There is a low rumbling grumble that ekes from underneath the doorway. And we Christians can contribute to that as well. Grumbling is absolutely natural to us in our fallen state. We grumble and we grumble. Things are not the way we want them to be. We look at our lives, we wish we were more like so-and-so. Why did God do this in my life? Why didn't he make me like that? Grumbling is a far worse plague to mankind than COVID because it's everywhere. It's contagious, it's deadly, it saps all the joy out of your life. Think about those liberated Israelites when they just got across the Red Sea. I mean, their sandals are hardly dry at the other end of the wet soil before they're saying, can we go back to Egypt? We want meat pots. <laughs> what in the world? Grumbling. Poor Moses. You remember how he despaired. He said, God, why have you given me charge of these people? We just grumble our way through the wilderness. Say, oh, there's not enough food. Okay, literally food from the sky. But what about water? Smack a rock, water comes out. Now we're still going back to Egypt. Just a grumbling that continued. Nothing was good enough. When in fact they were be being led by Yahweh himself, creator of the universe, guaranteeing their possession of a promised land flowing with milk and honey, providing for them, fighting their battles. Everything was provided for them, but it did require faith to believe the blessings they had. And they were not walking by faith, they were walking by sight. And when we look with sight, we grumble because it's a broken, fallen creation we live in and there are problems. You might be in a sharp circumstance right now or a whole sharp season and it seems to you you have a lot of reasons to grumble and not many reasons for gratitude. But if everything we just said in this class is true, you're wrong. You're so, so wrong. Everything I just described to you, true of you as a Christian, cannot be touched by anything on earth. 
It is a prelude to what Peter called our inheritance in heaven that's undefiled, reserved up there for you. It is a kind of treasure that Jesus talked about. He said, store up treasure in heaven because you're not going to get a thief, steal it there. There's not going to be a moth. There won't be rust to eat it away. Everything we talked about, those steps of salvation, your justification, the fact that God reckons you as entirely innocent and did so this morning when you woke up and got angry at your kids, you're still innocent before God. The fact that you're adopted into God's family, he guarantees things will turn out well for you. All of those blessings have nothing whatsoever to do with the circumstances you're in right now. Whether that be a very difficult boss at work or co-workers, it could be an intense family situation. Crushing, or it could be a terrible diagnosis, a life-crippling disease. But none of those things have any influence on all of the blessings that we just listed in this class that the Holy Spirit has already done in your life. They don't change. And if that's all you had and the rest of your life was as miserable as it can be, which it's not, but if it was, you would still have an endless well from which to draw up pools of gratitude. It does require faith, but it's true. I maybe shouldn't stereotype teenagers. I was one, can't I? We all know the teenager who has everything, but according to them, has nothing at all <laughs> because they don't have the newest iPhone or whatever. And so everything else they have means nothing and their parents hate them and want to ruin their lives. And you just observe that and you go, there's something so wrong about that. The point of this application is don't do that. You have so much. So you might not get the newest iPhone in your life. You might not get that promotion. You might have some real difficult trials, but you have so much. Let's not be the grumbler. So gratitude is one very important application of this. And let me finish this off with one other application. If the Holy Spirit, and not you, is the one who applies salvation, this produces in us an immense confidence in sharing the gospel with others. Because if you're like me, that doesn't come easily. You and I are only involved Really, technically, we're involved in one part of the order of salvation when we're sharing with others. We didn't talk about it, but it's calling. It's when someone hears the gospel. We're involved in that. We're sharing the gospel with them. But that's it. <laughs> we're not involved in regeneration, justification, adoption. We've got nothing to do with any of those. Conviction of sin, that's not us. We don't do that. We have such a small part. It's significant, so we share the gospel. But it's such a small part. And even when we bumble our way through our one little small part, like the kid in the play who misses the one line he has to say, even if you do that when you share the gospel, it's okay, the play goes on, God is still in control, the Holy Spirit can still do his mighty work. We don't use the excuse, you know, God's doing everything so God will just save people without us. We say, God's doing everything so God will save people with us. And that's more amazing, weak as we are. So not a neglect in us, but a real confidence. So as we finish this class, I would dare you just to think in your own mind of that one person that you know, family member, coworker, whoever. To you, this person seems most unlikely ever to be a genuine, bona fide, faithful, committed Christian. Think about that person. Maybe there's someone who mocks their family member, and every time you go back, home to see family, they mock your faith. Or it's a coworker who's so secure in their religiosity, you can't convince them they're not a believer, but they're not. 
and it's someone you've maybe just kind of given up on. You say, I've tried, or maybe you haven't even tried. You say, they're not going to be a Christian. Why? Why? Why are they not going to be a Christian? Because God can't do it? Do you know that's not right? Well, because I can't do it. Yeah, but you're hardly doing anything. <laughs> this is the work of the Holy Spirit to apply salvation, and it produces in us, when we believe it, a real confidence. Our only task is to go and share the gospel with someone, and you don't even have to do it that great. You just have to go do it. Tell them the gospel. Tell them what happened 2,000 years ago, and tell them if they trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will do all this. Just tell them, or even just tell them a part of that. And it is amazing the Holy Spirit can take that, and no one can resist him in it. It's our confidence. Trying to stop the Holy Spirit from saving someone, it's like taking your fly swatter to the beach and trying to stop the wind, you know? It's not going to happen. So it gives us an immense confidence that this is something the Holy Spirit can do. He is the applier of salvation. And if, like Moses, your objection is, I believe the Holy Spirit can save that very lost person. I just don't think I can articulate the gospel to them. It was already dealt with when Moses made the same objection. Who made man's mouth? We saw last week, the Holy Spirit crafted your mouth. Do you think he can put the words in it to speak to that person? Definitely he can. So let us have an immense gratitude that the Holy Spirit has given spiritual life to us and an immense confidence that he can do exactly the same thing to anyone in our lives.